Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now, here he is, the Peabody award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Great America Show. Truth, justice, and the American way. That's our way, and I hope it's yours as well. Thanks for being with us today. It's now the 19th day of the war on Ukraine. Death and destruction mount each day, and Ukrainians are fleeing their country in ever greater numbers. 2.8 million Ukrainian refugees now, that according to the latest estimates from the United Nations. As I've said throughout, the war on truth extends far beyond Ukraine's battlefields and borders. Reports that Russia had turned to China to supply the Russians much needed military equipment and presumably weapons. Russia denying any such requests but then there are reports today that China has said it is open to providing Russia with the requested military equipment and financial assistance for Russia to continue its war on Ukraine. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan at a meeting in Rome with senior Chinese officials reportedly told him there would be, quote, potential implications and consequences, end quote, for China if it provides that aid to Russia. And while the war rages on in Ukraine, there are concurrent ceasefire talks going on between the two sides that continue in Geneva, without, to this point, any sign of meaningful progress. Joining us now is former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense, highly decorated Army officer, author, consultant, and military analyst, Colonel Douglas McGregor, retired. Thanks for being with us, Colonel. Your thoughts on Sullivan's statement to the Chinese, there would be consequences if they provide military aid to the Russians. Well, I think it's a, a foolish statement. Uh, I think Sullivan is living in fantasy land. Uh, China is not gonna respond to those kinds of threats. And China is uh, essentially a civilization and an economy unto itself. So the notion that we can somehow or another punish China further uh, for its relationship with Russia is enormously self-defeating and self-deceiving. Bravado doesn't play well coming from a, a White House that has been to this point, uh, one, uh, if you believe in the approach they're taking, restrained, or two, uh, somewhat uh, meek, uh, if you believe they should be stronger. Uh, what do you believe this White House should be doing specifically uh, to support the Ukrainians? Well, first, I think the president has done two things correctly. So let's give him credit. First, he's made it abundantly clear that under no circumstances will our ground forces cross the Polish border into Ukraine because he recognizes that would precipitate all-out war with Russia. Mm -hmm. Secondly, he's absolutely refused to entertain the idea of a no-fly zone for the same reason. We'd end up losing aircraft and pilots, and we would be at war with Russia. 
And in that connection, the notion that we could somehow or another mysteriously and secretly fly aircraft from Poland or Romania or somewhere else uh, by Ukrainian pilots into Ukraine to help them with the war would result in essentially the same thing. So I think he's, he's done the right thing because we have no interest becoming involved in a war with Russia over what is happening in Ukraine. Now, beyond that, he doesn't seem to exert a great deal of control or influence over his government, let alone any leadership on the Hill, because we have an inexhaustible number of people who are trying desperately to precipitate conflict with Russia over Ukraine. And that's the last thing we want to do. What he should be doing is urging an end to the, to the fighting and tell the uh, Ukrainian president that first and foremost, he should immediately accept neutrality and renounce any further interest in joining NATO. That's a precondition for anything good to happen as a result of this event. There are two more conditions that the Russians have stipulated. One involves recognizing the Russian independence of the, of the Russian provinces in the Donbass and also renouncing any further interest in Crimea, which has never been part of Ukraine. Those are easy conditions to meet, but for some reason he's resisting. And I think he's resisting because he's being told by people in the West to continue resisting. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you that I think that there are a number of people in this administration who are seeking to widen the conflict in Ukraine without any question whatsoever. I also think that the Russia, the Republican uh, senators, uh, 40 of them, who want to give MiG-29s, uh, Polish MiGs, uh, to the Ukrainians, uh, have lost their minds. Uh, this is this is government by cute on the part of those Republican senators. Do you not agree? Well, let's face it. Most of these politicians on any given day on any policy want to be a little bit pregnant. The problem is that uh, you're not going to end up a little bit pregnant. You're going to end up in a lot of trouble if you do those things. And they don't seem to appreciate the dangers involved. I listen to people insist, oh, the Russians are weak. The Russians are that. Mm -hmm. They have no idea what's been going on on the ground. And the Russian army has behaved, in my judgment, very capably and very professionally, but they have moved slowly because Putin has demanded it, because he's wanted to eliminate or reduce civilian casualties. Uh, if you're going to reduce civilian casualties, you cannot run a scorched earth campaign. And he doesn't want that because ultimately Putin wants to live with the people in Ukraine after this is over. We seem intent on depicting him and the Russians as perfectly evil, deserving of the worst. And this is a very counterproductive position to take right now. It is It is counterproductive if the, if the purpose <coughs> of that rhetoric is to, uh, to, to find some common ground and uh, to be very uh, accommodating. I, at this point, Colonel, I have to, I have to point out that this is a, an invasion by the Russian army at the orders of Vladimir Putin. And when I look at the video, and I realize that the video is selective and it doesn't portray a general picture necessarily, but it's devastating what uh, those missiles, those rockets and, and the shelling have produced uh, in Ukraine uh, from Maripol uh, to, uh, uh, to Kiev, uh, it's devastating. Uh, so I don't understand exactly how you liberate a people as you shell them, bomb them, and send in rockets and missiles on a daily basis. What could well, possibly be the objective of that military strategy? Well, the objective is to destroy Ukrainian forces. 
And they are doing that, albeit slowly for the reasons I cited. Right now, the vast majority, 90% of Ukrainian forces are encircled, cut off in various towns and cities where they've taken refuge, right. intermingling with the civil populace, in some cases using the civil populace as shields, in other cases not. But particularly in Mariupol, they very definitely are using the civilian population as a shield. And then there is a large pocket of 60,000 Ukrainian forces encircled in, in southern Ukraine. Uh, they are going to be slowly but systematically pulverized out of existence unless Zelensky accepts the conditions. The Russians did not invade suddenly or, or in a surprise move by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the, the government has made it clear since 2007 that they will not allow Ukraine to be turned into a platform for attack against Russia. We have been working overtime to turn Ukraine into a hostile camp. And their greatest concern was that we would ultimately move uh, missiles and troops in there. We're also neglecting that there's been a war going on in eastern Ukraine since 2014, and 14,000 right. people have died, thousands of Russians who live in the Donbass. And Putin has made it very clear he's not going to stand by and watch those Russians be slaughtered. And again, Russians have been second-class citizens in Ukraine. And he has asked repeatedly for fair treatment of the Russians that live on Ukrainian soil. And again, that's been rejected. So we have a very one-sided view of things. And I think it's unhelpful. What we should be interested in doing is ending this thing. We don't want these people to kill each other. We don't want another war on the European continent. So we should host a conference and we should start by saying Ukraine will be neutral. We don't need it in NATO. We never did. There's no requirement for it. There's no need for it. And if you neutralize it, it becomes a wonderful buffer between Russia and NATO, which we should all welcome. I don't know that we should welcome, though, the argument that a buffer is required. Uh, I mean, when we think about uh, the, how close Alaska is to Russia, I, I mean, we have a, a small uh, strait there that uh, that is a buffer. But why is a buffer necessary? And why is uh, you know, why is this such a big deal? Because uh, point of fact, uh, there is great proximity between enemies and friends uh, all over the all over the world. Well, I mean, remember I don't that see why Russia gets gets a, a demand like that just as a matter of default. Well, remember that he pointed out early on that he would not tolerate the presence of missiles in eastern Ukraine that could reach Moscow in a matter of minutes. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to the missiles that were placed in Cuba that could reach the United States in a matter of minutes in 1963. Only today, you're talking about far more sophisticated and capable weapons. Absolutely. We, we are quite willing to do that and have made it clear that we would make Ukraine a member of NATO, a full-fledged member. We put our forces on the ground in Ukraine to train Ukrainian forces. We've equipped them. We've encouraged what I would call the suicidal nationalism that is so widespread in Western Ukraine uh, as, as a means of provoking the Russians uh, into stupid actions. And I right. think we've succeeded. So I, you know, I just reject the notion that, well, we don't need a buffer. Well, if you're a Russian and you're trying to keep missiles and hostile forces away from your border, I think you do. And right now, I think it's very clear to Putin and the Russian population that we are extremely hostile. They see no evidence at all for even the remotest interest in a fair and, and equitable settlement.
Well, uh, that settlement is going to be determined, uh, as most of these conflicts are, by the relative positions of the, of the opposing forces, in this case, the Ukrainians and the Russians. But now, now Putin is looking to, to communist China for additional equipment and supplies and presumably weaponry. What does well, that mean? Uh, well, we don't for us what that means in terms of the strength of the Russian military right now. Well, first of all, I, I reject the notion that they're desperate for something that, that only the Chinese can provide. I, I don't see any evidence for that. Uh, I, I think they have turned to China for many things. Most importantly, obviously, for the Russians is to sell their vast abundance of resources and food, oil and gas and metals to China, which the Chinese can eagerly absorb and pay for. They've also turned to the Chinese banks as an alternative to dealing with us in the West. Uh, I, I'm very skeptical of this report. I don't have access to the intelligence, but based on my experience, things can be taken out of context and wildly exaggerated. So I, I frankly speaking, don't buy it because most of the military technology that the Chinese have is based on what the Russians have given them or what the Rus or what they bought from the Russians. So going to China for particularly for their something. air force particularly yeah, their air force absolutely uh, the chinese have been able to build uh, good engines forever but uh, the point is i just i just wouldn't attach that much significance to it but we don't know what was asked for all right so at that with that how do we interpret and i agree with you this is this is the most this is a massive disinformation war uh, at the same time that the ground war proceeds uh, it is a uh, but we have complications now. We have an administration that is perceived by half the population as lying to them every day. We right. have an administration that has been incorrect in a number of, uh, of foreign policy decisions as well as domestic policy issues. There is great polarization within the United States. It is almost impossible for most Americans to find out which is the greater liar, the national media, the Biden administration, Vladimir Putin or, or Xi Jinping or the Ayatollahs? Well, I think uh, you're spot on. And unfortunately, our record is not a very good one. Uh, I think the real issue for Americans, quite frankly, is not the war in Ukraine. It's the potential to go to $150 a barrel in oil. I think uh, Americans are much more concerned about food inflation, about the inflation and commodities in general. Uh, I don't think uh, anyone in, in another month will be remotely interested in what happens in Ukraine if oil and gas prices go through the roof, uh, shelves are empty in grocery stores, the supply chain continues to break down. Uh, you know, Lou, you know the economics better than I do, but uh, Russia not only supplies more than one, one third of all the natural gas to Europe, there are 2,100 firms in the United States that have at least one tier one supplier in Russia. And when right. it comes to food, especially the grains, barley, wheat, this sort of thing, uh, a third of it comes from Russia and Ukraine. We're gonna start feeling the impact of, of the sanctions that, that we're trying to impose on the Russians here at home. And I think people will be a lot more interested in that than they are in what happens in Ukraine, to be blunt. I, I think there's every reason for you to, to, you know, to project that as a possibility. What I, I, I would got, I, you know, to understand contextually where that negotiation is between uh, Zelensky's government 
and the Russians, uh, which, by the way, now we're getting reports from Zelensky's government that the Russians are, to, are being more constructive, quote unquote, in those talks. But they've been going on for days as, they, as the Ukrainians take a pummeling at the hands right. of the Russians. So what are we to make of that shift if it is indeed a shift in those talks that are going on right now, daily? Well, it's difficult uh, to say from, from our vantage point. One thing that very few Mar Americans are aware of is that while we have essentially avoided direct involvement, we haven't been very helpful in promoting a settlement. In right. fact, uh, we've been very, very much involved in promoting hatred uh, for Russia and isolating Russia. But uh, the German Chancellor Schultz, his uh, administration, and I think President Macron and the French government are working now closely to try and promote a ceasefire based on arrangements that both sides can accept. And I hope that they're going to be successful because the longer this lasts, the worse it is for everybody. We're, we're not benefiting from this. Now, of course, uh, I don't know how the stock trading is going on the Hill right now in Congress and the Senate and how many people have cashed in on the energy problem up there. We know how that goes. Yep. But I'm saying the rest of the world is not benefiting. We are not benefiting. But there's one more thing to this, Lou, that I don't think we appreciate. We have been in the business of essentially weaponizing not just a SWIFT system, but a whole range of, of systems that we have dominated, certainly for the last 50, 60 years, against anyone we didn't like. Right. I think that's about to end. I think that what has happened now is that the Russians, the Chinese, probably many, many others in Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, South Asia, certainly India feels this way. They have decided to build parallel institutions. And I think what we're going to find is that we will no longer be able to inflict the pain that we have in the past because a portion of the world, perhaps as much as half or more of it, will simply operate in a different world from ourselves. I think that you're right, and we know that the Chinese are already building that system uh, and preparing, as a matter of fact, to, to go strongly into uh, digital currency, crypto. Uh, we don't know how far, how extensive, but we know they have begun. Uh, we've heard the President of the United States give support to crypto suddenly in an executive order, which was one of the most mindless uh, statements uh, of economic policy from a president I've, I've ever heard. Uh, just to randomly proceed without any discussion of either context or motivation or result uh, sought. No objectives and no uh, architecture. So I, I don't know what to make of this administration. And Colonel, I've got to ask you straight out. I think this administration is so weak, so feeble. When I look at Kamala Harris as vice president and Joe Biden as president of the United States, I couldn't imagine going to war at any time in our history with worse leaders uh, to, to be commander in chief and uh, deputy commander in chief. Well, that goes without saying. Uh, I think you're <laughs> absolutely right. But uh, add to this something else that for the last 30 years, our uh, fighting power inside our military establishment has been on a very steep decline. Uh, when Biden came to power, he simply, with social engineering, accelerated that decline even further. It took President Trump three years to figure out that he was being lied to on a pretty routine basis by the Department of Defense as well as state <coughs> and potentially the Central Intelligence Agency. 
but now I think we know with absolute certainty that our armed forces are in no position to fight anybody who can actually fight back. We haven't done it. We don't know how to do it. We've lost our capacity for that sort of thing. And the notion that we should turn to nuclear weapons is sheer unadulterated insanity. There is no winner in a nuclear exchange. And, and I think we need to sort of make that abundantly clear. This is something we shouldn't even consider. This is not 1965 when we had overwhelming superiority in every important category of military power. This is 2022. We are not where we were in 1990. We are not the world's only superpower. The unipolar moment has passed. And, and you just can't routinely punish people uh, for whatever it is that you don't like. You've got to deal with them. And that's what is desperately required now. We need to step up to the plate. And instead of uh, increasing the hatred for Russia in the hopes of somehow or another building, I guess, uh, support for the administration, uh, what we need to do is understand there is no hope for conflict. We need to look for a settlement. Politics is practical. We need to be pragmatic. What can we do to end this and then end it in a way that both sides walk out feeling that they've gotten something good? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think you've probably expressed the, the view that most people would love to see this government follow. Uh, I'm not sure of that, but I'm hoping that that's the case. Uh, and when we look at diplomacy on the part of this administration, I, to see Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, uh, playing uh, sheriff come to town, uh, making demands and throwing out threats is deeply troubling. To hear Joe Biden, the president of the United States, talk like a neighborhood thug and, and use it and do so in first person rather than speaking for the nation is deeply troubling. I can't believe that we have an administration so ignorant of the requirements of diplomacy, the requirements of responsibility for those jobs they hold. Lindsey Graham, my Lord, the man is, he's mad. Mitt Romney has gone just as nuts. And the, so I, you, you pick your party, you pick your poison. This is just an absurdity. And to, it goes to your point. It's as if none of them have any appreciation for the world as we have it rather than the world that once was. Well, there's also no appreciation of what the word war actually means. Because for the last 21 years, <clears throat> we have faced opponents without armies, without air forces, without air defenses, essentially without any capability per se at all that you would associate with a modern state. <clears throat> now we're facing one of the greatest military powers in the world. Now, this military power today in Russia is not what it was 30 years ago any more than we are. Right. Its forces are too small to launch an offensive against Western Europe. But the Russians know what they're doing. And if we push them and we threaten them and we bully them, uh, we will regret it. Uh, they are not leaving Ukraine. It's a vital national strategic interest for Russia that Ukraine not be hostile to Russia. We have no vital strategic interest in Ukraine. Our only interest is to end this thing on the best terms that we can get. That's where we should focus. But instead, we're treating Ukraine as though it were Texas. It's not. Yeah, and, and we <clears throat> sort of moved to where we began. Uh, and that is, as you said, neutrality is a necess necessary first condition for 
for Putin to be, to have constructive talks that lead somewhere. But what is neutrality when it comes to Ukraine? How what does that look like and what is given up and what is gained? Well, I think the best example, uh, something the Russians uh, embraced and respected and have honored ever since is neutrality in Austria. In 1955, the Austrian president wanted to end the Soviet occupation of Austria. They were sick, frankly, of the Soviet military presence, wanted it gone. And he sat down and he put together the Austrian state treaty. Dwight Eisenhower, who was then president, welcomed the development because Eisenhower had said repeatedly when he was Supreme Commander of Europe for NATO as a five-star general, and then later on as president, we didn't have then the armed forces, the ground forces, the air forces to defend all of Europe. He was interested in neutralizing as many states as possible to simplify the task of simply defending Central East Europe, that is West Germany from an attack. Right. Uh, so he welcomed it. And that treaty worked very well because Austria retained the capacity for its own army, its own government. Uh, it, it simply excluded all foreign forces, all foreign entities of any kind from maintaining any position of military power or influence in Austria. And it said it would maintain good relations with Russia, trade with Russia, in those days, the Soviet Union. It worked. And I think the same thing could work for Ukraine. And if you go to Austria today, it's enormously prosperous and successful. And once uh, at the heart of what was then East, the Eastern Bloc uh, in Europe, and we've, we've come a long ways without, uh, without this kind of conflict. We've approached it a number of times, but this is the first time that it is broken open into open warfare. And I, I'm not sure that we have the, the talent in our diplomatic services or the wherewithal in our military uh, to, to assure a favorable outcome. Uh, and that's deeply disturbing. I think most Americans would take neutral, as you say, and be thrilled uh, at the result. Uh, but obviously, that is not what this administration wants. It's not what 40 US senators want. Uh, and that, to me, is deeply frightening because none of those senators, not one, uh, has the capacity to be, uh, in my opinion, uh, negotiating uh, treaties uh, and conclusions to conflicts that result in neutrality uh, and peace. You well, you're right. Uh, you get the final word here, Colonel. Well, you're right. Uh, the strident positions that we've taken are simply irrelevant to the strategic requirement, which is to end the war. And I think we're going to watch the Europeans for the first time in many decades step forward and organize a peace out of this tragedy. And we will be marginalized as a result. And anyone who thinks that this has helped unify NATO has lost their minds. In fact, the opposite is the case. And we've already seen that with Germany that has said, thank you very much. We will continue to buy all the oil and gas that Russia wants to sell us. Japan has said the name th same thing. Those are two of the biggest economies in the world. So the notion that somehow or another, we are forming some great coalition to crush Russia is absurd. It's not happening and it won't work. Colonel, if I may, I'd like to turn to one last question that we'll insert before I, your last words. And because I neglected to, to address this, which is the Iranians uh, taking credit 
uh, and responsibility for the missiles they fired into Erbil, uh, Iraq, the Kurdish capital of Iraq, uh, and nearly hit the U.S. consulate there. And now we hear Xi Jinping threatening again Taiwan, 13 aircraft flying into the defense zone again from China. Where is China? Where is Iran uh, as this war goes on? Uh, as far as China is concerned, they're reacting to another one of our freedom of navigation exercises in the Strait of Taiwan. We keep moving aircraft carrier battle groups through there. And uh, the Chinese have never stopped a commercial ship. And commerce has been our preeminent concern as, as a global Navy for several hundred years. Uh, so there is no threat to commerce from China whatsoever. So I think uh, this is we're precipitating trouble with China at this point that only re reaffirms the wisdom in China's mind of stay, staying the course with Russia. So if our objective is to persuade the Chinese that they should remain strongly uh, partnered with Russia, then we're certainly succeeding. As far as Iran is concerned, uh, if they had wanted to hit our consulate, they would have done it. And the real question is, what are we doing with 2,500 troops on the ground in, in Iraq? I haven't figured it out. Uh, the place is effectively an Iranian satellite. If we leave, it will become more problematic for the Iranians, not less. And then secondly, the principal competitors in the region are the Turks and the Iranians. The only thing we've done is to keep them apart. And the real question in my mind is, why are we bothering? Colonel, it's always a delight to talk with you. We always learn something. We appreciate your insight uh, and your judgment. Um, thanks so much, Colonel Doug McGregor. God bless you, thanks. and thanks for being with us. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. Please join us tomorrow when we'll be talking with Steve Bannon, great American, former top strategist for President Donald Trump, documentarian, and host of his super successful Steve Bannon's war room. Please join us here on the Great America Show tomorrow. We want to invite you to sign up for our Great America Show advisory and newsletter. Simply go to ludobs.com, that's ludobs.com, and click on the email newsletter button. It's as simple as that. And we'll send you our advisories and alerts as well as our weekly newsletter. I don't want to overstate anything, but I'm pretty sure you will absolutely sense at least a small positive change in your world outlook. We invite you to join us and stay in touch. Thank you. That's ludobs.com. Thanks. God bless you. And God bless America. Join us again tomorrow for the Great America podcast. Stay in the fight. Truth, justice, and the American way will prevail against all enemies, against all odds.